Stormco guys, it was great. I've been on a Stormco. We went out to, um, <coughs> it was a place way out, out back, New South Wales. It was an Aboriginal community. And the team had picked me to be the clown. And I was like, oh, I've got to be the clown. And so we arrived at this remote, remote place. And we get out of the van. And all these Aboriginal kids come up. And, and they're not, they weren't interested in the rest of the people, just me, the clown. And they, they came up to me and they were just watching me. And I thought, what's going to happen? Are they afraid of me? And they just got a little closer. And it was just like, they were just still. And then one of them smiled and he went for my nose. <laughs> and so I took off and it was, it was a big oval. And so while the rest of the group was unpacking the van, I was running with about like 30, 40 Aboriginal kids chasing me in a clown suit. And everyone was cracking up, but I wasn't. I was running for my life. I didn't know what they were going to do. And they got me. So Stormco, it's, it, was, it was a good day. It was really good. You mentioned how you went to the um, that uh, retirement home and you sang Amazing Grace. And I, I just want to start by um, speaking a little bit about the man who made, wrote uh, Amazing Grace, John Newton. A uh, really amazing guy. He was raised by his uh, Christian mother until he was seven and then she died. And then... Uh, he was raised by his father, and his father was not really a Christian, and he was part of the merchant navy. And so at 11 years of age, John Newton, 11, joined the merchant navy. Incredibly rough life, um, incredibly dangerous environment in every respect. And he then went on uh, six sea voyages. It was a very um, rough life. And he actually lost his first job. It was in the merchant uh, merchant's office because of, quote, unsettled behavior and impatience of restraint. And that's a pattern that persisted throughout his life, just this rebelliousness against authority. And so he, he, he lost that job, and then he was pressed, press-ganged into the Navy. I don't know if you know what that means. But they would in England, they had press-gangs. And press gangs would basically go around, find young men, and basically force them into the Navy. They'd, they'd basically kidnap you. They'd basically capture you. You're, once you're on the Navy, that's it. You couldn't just leave. So he was pressed ganged into the Navy. Um, such, a, such a difficult, dangerous life, especially back then. This is in the 1700s. Uh, eventually he rebelled and deserted. But he was found, put in irons, he was flogged was captured. Uh, then they sold him to a slaver ship. In other words, in a sense, he became a slave. Um, John Newton. At the time, he was a free thinker or a skeptic. He, he described himself as arrogant and insubordinate, and he lived with moral abandon. Quote, I sinned with a high hand, which is a, a biblical reference to extreme sin, not, not just average. And he says, I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. So he would do wrong, but he would get everyone else involved in doing wrong. Um, he w- Then he was basically um, in the employment, basically as a slave, to a slave trader named uh, Clough. 
And uh, this man owned um, a plantation just off West Africa. And there he was treated cruelly and he was abused by Clow and his um, African mistress. And eventually his clothes turned to rags and he was actually forced to beg uh, for food to allay his hunger because they mistreated him that badly. This went on for some time. Uh, eventually he was rescued by one of the, the friend, a friend of his father. And uh, they, he transferred him into the service of a captain of a ship called the Greyhound. It was a Liverpool ship. This is in 1747. And on the homeward journey, he encountered a storm, a terrible storm. And just at this time, he had just started reading a little book called um, the, the Imitation of Christ by Thomas um, Thomas Akempis, which is a medieval sort of classic. And uh, it talked about the, you know, the uncertain continuance of life. And he had just been reading this and he got into the storm and he absolutely feared for his life. And all the pain and the suffering that he had been through sensitized him to the issue of what is he going to do with his life and what is he going to do with God. And I'm, I'm sure he remembered all those years back when he was a little boy and what his mother said to him. And there in that storm, he, he, it was sort of like a partial conversion to God. But he said, uh, later admitted, I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word. So he, he started a journey, but it wasn't completed. Um, after this, he then became a, a mate uh, and, and eventually a captain in some slave ships. And he, he was starting to grow in his uh, relationship with God. And he thought, well, as I become a Christian, maybe I can... Um, Restrain the worst excesses of the slave trade. This was his initial thoughts. And he started to, to do this both for the crew, but also for the African slaves. And so he was trying to uh, somehow make a difference in the slave trade. Um, a few years later, he left uh, the sea for an office job, again, to do with um, uh, the Navy and, and the slave trade. And But at this time, he then came under the influence of the Wesleyan revival which was breaking out in England under the influence of men like George Whitfield and John Wesley, Charles Wesley. And this really began a real transformation in his life. And he became increasingly disgusted with the slave trade and his role in it. He then quit his job and was ordained into the Anglican ministry and then he had a, um, a church The more time went on, the more he felt he needed to do something about the slave trade. And often in his congregation was a certain man, William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce would become the key uh, man in England who would actually seek and bring about the abolition of the slave trade in the um, British Empire. And um, they worked together. In fact, Newton wrote a book quote, the, called The Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. And, and he was able to speak in a first-hand manner because he had been there. He had seen it all. And he was able to describe all the conditions and what had happened what happened to the slaves. And he, he talked about how the slave trade was a business at which my heart now shudders. And um, near the end of his life, when he was incredibly old and incredibly feeble, uh, people suggested that he retire. And this was his response. He says, I cannot stop. What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? In other words, he's talking about himself. 
um, and what he had done. And so he wouldn't give up, he wouldn't retire until, as long as he was alive, he worked to end the slave trade. Now, I bring up this story about uh, John Newton because what it does is it illustrates particularly what we talked about last night and what I'm going to talk about now. And that is in terms of the problem of evil, and we've looked at how it's a theoretical problem and there's, oh, there's an intellectual problem, and, and we looked at how God has done something here in Jesus. And then last night we looked at how then God comes to us and first he tackles the root problem of um, pain and suffering, which is, is sin, it's, you know, rebellion against God, and it's the way we relate to God and other people, and how God calls us to himself. And what he does is he gives us the solution by giving us Jesus Christ. And so God tackles it at the very core in us as individuals. So that's what we looked at last night. But then what God does is he keeps working, and then he works through us in the world. And, and John Newton's life really illustrates this, because here you have a man who, who really, really lived at the lowest of the low, both in his moral behavior, but particularly, you know, he was involved in the slave trade. But encountering God, and it took a bit of a time, though. It was a bit of a process. He just didn't suddenly come to um, rejecting the slave trade. He wanted to soften it. But eventually, the more um, he came under the influence of God, he then spent his life working against it. And through his efforts and then Wilberforce's and, and um, the Wesleyan Revival, uh, they, they got rid of the slave trade. It's a really powerful illustration of what God is aiming to do through us in the world. And that's what we're, we're looking at now. Uh, I just want to look at this um, passage of Scripture here. This is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves um, are comforted by God. Uh, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so we also, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so um, what he's got here, you notice, he's got this um, this phenomena that God is seeking to bring about in the world. So the first thing is, I just want to notice, he deals about with God's real, true identity. And this is not how people usually think of God. They think of God as the, the distant one. But he says, the God, the Father of Jesus Christ, is actually the God of comfort. The one who comforts people in their afflictions. But then um, we see a flow or direction of how this uh, comfort works. God comforts us in our afflictions in order that we may comfort those, um, sorry, able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort we receive from God. So God comforts us that we can comfort others. God blesses us that we can bless others. God comes to us so he can work through us in other people's lives. So it's never just about just us and God. God's um, doing things in the world, but he wants to involve us in it, so we become part of what he is doing in the world. Now, the interesting thing is, the comfort we receive from God is is we're conscious of it. We know God. We know where it has come from. But a lot of other people don't know God. They don't uh, know that. And they encounter God often when we um, seek to help them in their life. So God wants to make us part of his present healing uh, work in the world. And by doing this, you know, God is also lifting us out of ourselves. 
because you think about it, like, I don't know about you, I have a quest for my own comfort. Like, almost everything I'm doing in my life is actually to make things comfortable for myself. And we, we all do that. But God comforts us for a purpose. In other words, to lift us out of ourselves towards um, other people. And I want you to notice another thing in this verse, and this is really important. Paul is writing to a community. He's writing to a group. And this is really crucial. What God is aiming to do in the world is actually establish in a community through which he can work. So it's not just uh, individual. So the comfort here is theological. It comes from God. It's also communal. It happens in a group. And it's also got a mission. It's to spread out to the, the rest of the world. And I want, to, I want you just to look at how um, God tackles the problem of evil in a very practical way. And, and when we look at Jesus and what he was doing, we see him doing it from the very start, from the very get-go. He has this in mind. And everything he does is actually to set this up. So I'm going to read a series of verses, one at the start of Jesus' ministry, one in the middle, and one at the end. So this is one at the start. Um, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, which takes on the kingdom of evil, kingdom of darkness, of death, and everything else in this world. So Jesus brings this, comes near. Um, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately after this, like following him, look at what they see. Look at what they observe. They observe him. He went and he's teaching. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. So they follow him, but they one of the things in following him, they actually see what he does to people. What, what does he do when Jesus encounters pain and suffering? Okay, that's at the start. Then notice this, partway through... Um, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, again, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. So that's repeated, same phrase. And notice this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he sees the need. He sees the suffering humanity. And then he said to his disciples, so he said to them, look, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray that earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. In other words, look at all this need. Talk to God, ask Him to do something about it. And immediately, this is just after this, um, this is what He do, this is what He does. He then calls to Him His twelve disciples and He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve are these, and I, I haven't put them in, but you know the twelve disciples. And then these twelve Jesus sent out and instructed and He said, go to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, go to your own people, go go to this land, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, same message, and notice, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So that's what happens in the middle of the ministry, and then at the end, um, okay, I've got a, I've got a verse missing there, but I'll read it to you. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus calls his disciples, and he said to them, all authority, maybe just, you talked about that beforehand, and heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so I just want you to notice um, what he was doing here. So first you have, and we're missing half of this, um, but the kingdom comes in Jesus. He brings God's kingdom, God's response to pain and suffering, and he calls disciples, so they get to spend time with him. Next thing he does, the kingdom, he shares it with his disciples. And he makes, he, he starts making disciples. And that is when he actually sends them out. He says, look, I'm giving you authority. Go take the kingdom. Go heal. Go help. Go bless. So he's, he's training them. He's showing them how to do it. And then the last one, the kingdom is spread to the world by his disciples. And he sends disciples to make disciples. In other words, what it, this becomes actually... A, a replicating cycle. So what he's done is he's invited us into his activity in the world to end pain and suffering and evil. And the key thing, the way he does it, is um, by making disciples. So that is what God is doing now. And there's three stages to what he's what he's doing. So the first one is in Christ, right? That's in the past, and it's it's completed. It was completed. It was perfect. Now he's working in community. But this is a this is what he's doing presently and it's ongoing. And then and Roy will sort of look at it finally in all of creation. In the future, God will perfect everything. But the one we're looking at is the middle one, and I want you to notice that the first one is completed or perfected in Jesus Christ. You know, he, Jesus took on all those uh, things that destroy us and he dealt with them and the final one is perfected as well but the middle one is not it's neither perfected nor completed it's ongoing and that's where we are at the moment that's what we're um, part of and that's what God uh, calls us to be part of okay so what particularly are we to be in this middle section and I'm going to go back to a verse we looked at um, last weekend where Paul describes what God is doing and uh, I want you to look for the key word that describes us. And I'll ask you what it is at the end. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciliated us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, well, this verse describes basically the, the diagram I just put up, how in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself. And uh, now he's come to us and he's reconciled us and he gives us the re- message of reconciliation so we're to go and invite other people. But what what are we described as in this verse? What are, What's the key word? What's the description? Ambassadors. Really crucial word. What's an ambassador? An ambassador 
is an envoy or a representative of a foreign state, a foreign country. So, um, in a sense, in Australia, you don't have an ambassador for Australia. It's only when, when you leave Australia, true? Then you have ambassadors. And um, what this means is naturally you and I are citizens of this world. But when you encounter God, when you accept that reconciliation, you actually become part of a different kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, right? But the kingdom of God. And that means all of a sudden you're a citizen of a different country. This is not, this age, the current age we live in is not your home. You then become an ambassador. Now, an ambassador actually represents that kingdom and has actually the authority of that kingdom. And so this is what, um, this is what God does. He actually makes us ambassadors for Him. We're representatives of Him in the world. And particularly, not only as individuals, but as a community, we become like an outpost of God's kingdom, which has come into this world. And we are supposed to be a living demonstration of God's rule. Um, a healing community, one that relieves pain and suffering, in a sense, uh, reflects that ministry of Jesus, you know, who is teaching, who is proclaiming, and he was healing. So the same thing has to happen um, with us that happened with him. And then what we do becomes signs of that kingdom, uh, outward manifestations of what it looks like when God is ruling, when God's in charge, when God is the king. And so th- within this community is what people are meant to encounter. Um, forgiveness. They, they, they encounter forgiveness with God, forgiveness with one another. Uh, love for neighbors, but also love for enemies, which is, of course, really challenging. Um, practical assistance to the hurting and the suffering. And, you know, Jesus told all these parables to illustrate this. You know, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, healing the sick, um, housing the orphan, supporting the widow, comforting the grieving, befriending the lonely, educating the ignorant, um, housing the destitute. Like that that's what ambassadors of that kingdom are supposed to do, and that becomes signs of that kingdom. Um, ending ethnic and racial divisions. You know, there's neither Jew nor Greek uh, in Christ. End to idolatry or any form of idolatry, whether it would be false gods or money or power. Um and all these. Now, these are signs and evidence that the kingdom is is present. Um, that God, uh, what God wants to do in the world. And it's interesting when you look at history. Um, after Jesus, there was this incredible um, impetus within the early Christians to make a difference in the world. And uh, like I talked about slavery. Um, through the efforts of Newton and Wilberforce and whatever, they ended slavery. That was actually the second time slavery had been ended in the world. The early church actually ended slavery in the Roman Empire. Uh, it talks about bishops who would um, manumit or release slaves, and sometimes they would release like 2,000 slaves at a time. They would pay for it. Whenever they could, the early Christian church tried to release slaves. And eventually they abolished slavery uh, with in that area. Now, it was still kept alive in other parts of the area of the world. And that's how it restarted again in Europe. Um, the Islamic 
empires always had slaves and they kept it alive. So it, it's interesting that abolition of slavery happened twice in human history, and each time it was due to the influence of, of Jesus. And, and so the, the, the ambassadors actually reflected their king in these areas. Um, in the early Roman Empire, um, uh, abortions, which were really dangerous for the ladies, not only the child, uh, infanticide, they would, they would just expose children to the elements. Um, all of these things, the church stopped. And initially what they would do, the, the, the uh, church would go out and they would find places where um, people would come and just leave babies. Like, they didn't want this child. I was a girl. I don't want a girl, the father would say. Get rid of her. And they would actually, there was areas where you'd go and you'd just leave the, anim, the, the child and either elements or animals or whatever. Well, the Christians knew where they were and they would always come and get these kids. And uh, they banned infanticide among themselves. And you can look at all these different things where... Um, Jesus' ministry was replicated in the world and there was actually real healing uh, taking place. Now, um, so these are outward signs. The world sees them. Um, a, a big difference is made in the world. But there's an engine that drives that. Okay? There's an engine that drives that. And this engine, this is a verse in and Acts, which describes what the early church was like, and this is the engine that drives that practical service, which makes a difference in the world. Difference in the world, and it says that they devoted themselves as the early uh, church to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had things in common. They supported each other. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily by those who were being saved. So you've got the practical transformational difference in the world. Houses, orphanages, hospitals, storm coes, <laughs> um, all of this is happening. But the thing that drives it is discipleship. Okay? This is really important because the church is not just a social welfare organization or a social justice organization. People, a lot of people, that's what they, what they want it to be. But that happens because something else is happening. And, and the other something else which is happening is discipleship. Remember, that's what Jesus was doing. He was making disciples. And so notice what disciples do. They, they learn the apostles' teaching or they, they learn scripture. They, they learn the word of God. They fellowship together as a group, as a community. So they form a community and, and hospitality is a really important thing. So they eat together and they meet in homes. Um, they, they share life together. They support each other practically. So they said they held things in common. What they do, they would sell sell things and they'd give it to the group, not not to individuals, but they'd give it to the group collectively and then the group collectively would know who would need it and they would help people practically. Um, Worshipping, absolutely key. key. One of the engines um, that drives, uh, say, the people of God making a difference in the world is worshipping God, really worshipping Him with their hearts and everything they've got. Prayer, absolutely crucial. These these people were praying, so they keep their connection with God, sharing the gospel, the good news, the news of of this kingdom which is going to transform the world and transforms people's lives. 
Um, this is the spiritual engine um, that, drew, that that made the difference in the world. You know, some people say, oh, some people are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Okay, and that's people who have um, you know a distorted distorted of idea of uh, spirituality that's some sort of individual private thing that's in my heart. You know. And, and actually, that's what spirituality, you know, people say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's all it means, is, um, well, I have a self-centered religion. So there's, there's nothing um, superior about spirituality, okay? Um, but the people who actually made the biggest difference in the world were the people who are conscious of another world. So John Newton, the kingdom of God encountered him and um, he fell in love with with God with Jesus Christ and that kingdom but it actually meant he made a huge difference in in this life so I want you to realize that's actually the engine that uh, drives everything and so this is obviously the community and an, another way it impacts the world is not only in terms of um, the practical help, uh, difference it makes in the world. But also, and this, I think this is particularly, uh, prominent for everyone here. It's in terms of vocation. So, um, Jesus said this. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives life, light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Another way that God seeks to work in the world and have his kingdom influence the world is through vocation. And that is so in your actual work, as you're mixing with people in the world, you're supposed to be salt and light. This is uh, how Jesus saw things working. Now, salt obviously influences. It changes the taste. It, it just permeates into other things. So this is talking about life outside of the community of God, outside of the church. Salt. And, and, and then light. Light is what people see. It's a visible demonstration of, of what the kingdom is like. Visibly trying to help make a difference in people's lives. Now, um, I just want to just finish with looking at two things. Um, one is the relationship to, say, politics. Um, just briefly about this. You know, sometimes what God wants to do in the world matches what secular groups want to do in the world, especially in today's society. So maybe there's a social justice cause or, or something like that. Um, and, you know, there I talked about how the early Christians made a real difference in the world. They stopped gladiators, you know, the slaughter of people and animals. They stopped infanticide. They started adopting orphans. They stopped slavery. Um, in the John Newton and then the Wesleys, there was all these reform movements in the British Empire in particular where um, there's all these reforms for children. You know, it used to be child labor around the world. It was universal. Um, that... that um, Wesleyan movement and revival stopped all that. They started to change that. Lord Shaftesbury. And honestly, there were so many reforms, criminal reforms, prison reforms, hospital reforms. It was, it was pr- profound what they did, transforming um, the world. Now, the church at times does things which match what other society wants to do. 
Um, but the church itself is never to be politicized. Because you know how you have left and right politics, don't you? And some people want the church to become um, sort of like the, the group which pushes, say, the political right. Others want it to chew, push the political left. But the, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And what he designed and his people um, to, to live like was, I can only describe it, it is political because it relates to how we live in civil society, but it's actually a non-political, social, spiritual activism. How do you like that? But that's what God calls us to do. So it, it is actually, it, it is political. You know, when Jesus um, welcomed the outcasts, he was actually taking on the political and social structures of his time. And a lot of his behaviors challenged all that. But at the same time, he never tried to overthrow Rome or the Sanhedrin. So it, so what I'm saying is politically relevant. It changes the, the polis or the, the city or the, the country. But it's a non-political, social, spiritual activism. That's what God uh, calls his people to do. Now, what this does then is it leads to the last point, and this is a really important one, because you think, you look at this and you hear this and you see what Jesus was aiming to do, you, sh- you see what he did, did in his own life and what he call- has called the church and his people to be, you know, ambassadors, a reconciliation, signs of the kingdom, like evidence of, of what God wants to do in the world, but then you go, wait a sec, um, if you look at the history of Christianity, it's a pretty mixed bag, isn't it? So you do see them stopping the slave trade and doing all these other things. But then you also see them persecuting. Um, sometimes involved in um, you know, forms of racism, nationalism, supporting wars. And you think, well, what, what's going on here? Um, that's just sheer hypocrisy. And so some people might be attracted to to Jesus, but say, but I don't want anything to do with the people connected to Jesus. And I think this is a this is a really um, important sort of point. And I, I suppose the the um, the thing to remember is this, and this comes back to something I mentioned earlier. Is remember, there's 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 pain and suffering and evil in the world because it looks like a war zone because it is a war zone there is actually a spiritual conflict going on. And the church, or the people of God, is not like the place where you don't find that conflict. It's actually where the conflict sometimes is intensified. So um, you, you can almost expect that you're going to get the two elements manifesting themselves, even in the very people that claim... Uh, to follow Jesus Christ. And rejecting um, either Jesus um, because of the hypocrisy of the church is a bit like rejecting a hospital because it has sick people in it. Hospitals are fine as long as they don't have sick people. Or like going to an AA meeting and being disgusted because there are people that are either alcoholics or they have been alcoholics. you know. And so the the church actually becomes a place where that spiritual battle continues. Um, it's also a manifestation of uh, spiritual war. But God keeps reforming it, renewing it wherever he can, wherever people are willing to uh, um, cooperate with him. 
and especially so as we near the end of all things, which Roy's going to talk about. And um, I just want to, I think you've got this um, little response. No, you're about to receive uh, one of these. And what it does is it, it starts to look at um, the, the practical thing which I, which I just talked about, which is two elements. One is the formation of community, a community that where God brings the defeat of evil to the world. And also practical things that make a difference. So it's it's just like I'd like to join the fight to end evil by, and you can be committing to a local church community, a group of um, followers of Jesus, where they learn to become disciples of him. Uh, learning about a joint community service project, doing something here locally, uh, maybe overseas as well to help. Uh, another one is taking a spiritual gifts test to learn how I can utilize my talents and interests for God and others better. In other words, seeing how God may have created me, crafted me, equipped me to work in the world. And so that we'll look at that. Um, learning more about the mission and I suppose particularly learning more about the exchange here and what they uh, want to do. And also you can look at um, future topics, um, small groups, which is going to discuss the problem of pain more, um, talk about relationships, socials, and, and other things like um, that. So if you want to... Um, uh, fill that out. Thank you. As you fill out the card, I'm just going to sing a song of reflection. It's called Came to My Rescue, or Come to My Rescue. And as you reflect on the words and fill out the card, um, I hope you'll be blessed. came to my rescue and I 
God is making in your world. I just want to end with a prayer. Dear God, I just thank you that you involve us in what you are doing in this world. The ones who are in pain, but also causing others pain. You come to us and you present Jesus to us. And then, Lord, you want us to be part of what Jesus did in the world. And I thank you for that privilege. And I pray that it would happen here in our lives. We'd be truly ambassadors and that the exchange would be ambassadors for Christ in the very midst of Melbourne, I pray in your name. Amen.